You are listening to Climate Now. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm James Lawler. And today we'll be discussing the IPBES or IPBIS and IPCC co-sponsored workshop on biodiversity and climate change. So the background here is in June of 2021, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, or IPBES for short, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, held a workshop to discuss how we can both preserve biodiversity and pursue bold climate change strategies without compromising either initiative. This was a four-day virtual workshop and a first-ever collaboration between climate and biodiversity experts. And what came out of it was a 256-page report detailing all of their conclusions. We'll have a link to that report in our show notes, but to get a more concise insight into this workshop and what happened, why it was needed, we're speaking with Dr. Pete Smith, one of the lead authors of the report. Dr. Smith is also a professor of soils and global change at the University of Aberdeen and science director of Scotland's Climate Exchange. Dr. Smith, welcome to Climate Now. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. So we'd like to begin with the same question for all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Through a very weird route. Um, I uh, started off as a zoologist. I was an undergraduate zoologist. I did my PhD in zoology and uh, then got got a job working in science in zoology for a short time after that. Um, and that's where I picked up some computer modeling. But I then decided to switch those computer modeling skills and apply them in a different field. And that's why when I got into biogeochemistry, modeling the global carbon cycle, and particularly looking at the, you know, the the role that uh, land use and agriculture plays in in greenhouse gas emissions and how we can reduce them. That's quite a transition from zoology to computer modeling. So let's, let's focus on this workshop that you were a part of. What was the motivation behind it? Yeah, I think the reason the workshop happened, we'll start with that, is because um, IPCC covers some aspects of biodiversity, but it's not the central focus. And the IPBES platform was designed to look at the um, growing problem of biodiversity loss. And whilst climate change is a main driver of that, biodiversity was the focus. So we've got these two big intergovernmental panels going on in parallel, um, each one referring, cross-referring a bit to the other, these two intergovernmental panels have not come together before. So it's really, it's really important really to get those, to get those talking to each other, because a lot of the solutions um, require that we treat the two, the two problems, the climate emergency and the emergency of biodiversity, rapid biodiversity loss together. And if we don't tackle them together, um, we don't tackle, we don't tackle either one effectively. So I think it was really important for, for, for the, the two panels to start talking together. So to understand why this workshop between the IPCC and IPBIS was needed, I'm curious, in what ways might these two efforts be adversarial? Are there examples of projects or policies that were helpful or can be helpful on the climate side, but are harmful on the biodiversity side? Or are there biodiversity programs that are great for biodiversity conservation, but not effective in terms of you know, reducing emissions? Yeah, sure. I think that's that's a bit more one-sided. It's not just um, an, an equal an equal balance between the two. There are some clear uh, mitigation options that you might take that address climate change that would be bad for biodiversity. So I'm thinking of, for example, um, very large-scale afforestation to remove several gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere as a net, uh, net removal, uh, greenhouse gas removal technology. 
um, you'd, you'd need an area around about twice the size of India to get that, that sort of level of removal. Um, when we look at it the other way around, there aren't so many things that are good for biodiversity that are bad for climate. I think, um, generally speaking, biodiversity in, interventions are good for climate, and the worst they get is neutral, like, like having an, uh, a neutral effect on climate change. So you don't tend to get interventions that are good for biodiversity and bad for climate, but you do have interventions that are good for climate and can be bad for biodiversity. Could you expand a bit more about why planting a forest twice the size of India could be harmful for biodiversity? Yeah, because uh, as the old song goes, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it that matters. Um, so so it's not afforestation per se that's a problem. I mean, look, you know, planting trees, people love trees. It's a, it's a, a nice win-win uh, nature-based solution, you would think. And where it's done appropriately, so if we're using native species, we're doing it either through natural generation, natural regeneration or assisted regeneration on an area where trees once grew, that's generally very good for biodiversity. So that's that's a clear way that afforestation or reforestation could be a nature-based solution. But if you look on the other hand, you can also plant non-native species, which are grown in monocultures and cover large areas, which can be basically a biodiversity desert. You know, they block out all the light underneath. Um, the local plant species and animal species aren't used to living in them, so they don't uh, they don't they don't form a good habitat for biodiversity. Another good example is where you plant trees um, where that's not the the natural climax climax vegetation. So there are large areas of savanna in Africa and in South America, for example, and in Central Asia that could be planted up with trees, but they don't naturally carry trees in their ecosystems. So we'd have to use native species, and that would generally, again, be very bad for biodiversity. So we just have to find the right solutions. It's been frequently quoted as the right tree in the right place. That's what we have to do. So what would you say to someone who says that we should just prioritize pulling carbon out of the air and worry about biodiversity later? Because I guess the logic is if we don't solve the climate crisis before it causes irreversible damage, then biodiversity will be sort of the least of our problems. It's right what you say that if we don't tackle climate change, we're screwed. And biodiversity will be screwed if we don't tackle climate change. We have to get that under control. So that has to be, you know, the, the thing that we're aiming to do. But there are ways to address that. You know, as I've said, these nature-based solutions are ways to address it, which means that you don't have to choose between climate change and biodiversity. We can actually co-deliver to climate change to mitigation and to biodiversity at the same time. And in fact, those those mitigation measures are better and more stable in the long term. Um, so they may take up more carbon. And we know that if we destroy habitats and biodiversity, bio the biodiversity that supports those habitats, actually the carbon sinks that we're relying on, um, you know, the trees that we're growing, um, will not be will not be functional ecosystems. So we could reduce our sink capacity for sucking up carbon if we don't treat the biodiversity fairly and properly at the same time. It's really not a matter of choosing between the two. It's a matter of ensuring that the biodiversity is there because its function is providing vital functions that allow, um, that allow our ecosystems to absorb carbon. So we really have to do the two together. There's not a way that we can prioritize one over the other. We have to tackle them both together.
that's why it was so important for IPBES and IPCC to come together to state this. So the report that came out of this workshop detailed some actionable items for policymakers and organizations to reduce the impact of climate change and support biodiversity. Could you walk us through several of these strategies um, and explain how they work? Yeah, okay. So some of them are to do with, well, they all center around what I've called nature-based solutions. I've mentioned it a few times before. And those are solutions which tackle climate change and provide mitigation and adaptation benefits, but also provide measurable benefits to, to biodiversity and to human well-being. So they can fit into a number of categories. So the first one is protect, and that involves protecting high carbon and high biodiversity value ecosystems. So obvious examples are um, our tropical rainforests, which are incredibly biodiverse and also hold a, a huge amount of carbon. So protecting those areas is really important. Um, and there is a suggestion that we need to increase the amount of protected areas, um, maybe to 30% of the global land surface. So that we do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I think it should possibly be even higher. Um, but we do, you know, there is land competition, there's competition for land. So where we can find multifunctional land uses, where we can deliver more than one thing, for example, through agroecology, agroforestry, we can still produce food as well as timber, as well as protect biodiversity, as well as creating a carbon sink. So those multifunctional land uses are useful. So there's that protect. Protect is one of the things. We know that we've got a lot of our uh, ecosystems aren't pristine. They've been damaged or degraded in some way. And that can be, you know, through desertification. It can be through overuse of forestry. It can be through peatlands being drained. And for those high, high biodiversity and high carbon ecosystems, we should put our efforts into restoring them. So there's protect on one hand, there's restore the pristine ecosystems to get them back to their former glory, to support biodiversity um, and to reverse biodiversity loss and to store carbon. Um, the third is to manage ecosystems better because we, we're going to need to we need to produce food, obviously, to feed everybody on the planet. And we also need to produce timber, maybe more timber. Productive timberland is needed because we want to replace the steel and concrete that's used in construction, um, which are very, very carbon intense. So if we're going to do that, we, we have to have productive forestry and productive, productive agriculture. So we, we're still going to use that land for things other than biodiversity. But the trick there is to manage the land in a way that is conducive to biodiversity, that supports biodiversity, as well as um, climate mitigation. So it also, it's not just a matter of just putting a fence around everything and saying nobody goes there. We need to use a lot of the land and to treat it better and to treat it more constructively, like with regenerative, regenerative agriculture, for example, and agroecological farming, to use that land productively. The last category is to create, create novel ecosystems. For example, in urban environments, we could be creating a sort of like human influenced ecosystems we can uh, be smart in the way that we do that. Meaning sort of parks or... Yeah, using green space within cities or even uh, even on buildings, you know, so we can use um, we can use plants on the outside of buildings to cool buildings and we can use that sort of green infrastructure to do a lot of the stuff that we're using energy for in the first place. 
so there are some innovative solutions in the in the in our cities and urban areas that we could also use which would constitute nature-based solutions so are there any targeted strategies or policies that are suggested in the report yes there are some other things in there you know which are you know we can document some things that are ongoing which are bad for biodiversity and bad for climate so i'm thinking of overfishing for example um uh, uh deep bed uh seabed trawling which is bad for biodiversity and um bad for carbon sequestration because it rips up your kelp beds and your sea grasses and such like so there are some things that we we need to just stop doing or to do them in a much more um environmentally friendly way so there are some things out there and, and another one a, a good example is um is our overconsumption in many countries uh in many industrialized countries and economies in transition our overconsumption of meat and dairy um, which has a much larger biodiversity footprint in terms of the land that's used for animal agriculture compared to plant-based diets so a shift in diet and waste reduction as well waste food waste reduction would would go a long way because it would take the pressure off the land a bit it would create more space in which we could do nature-based solutions and so for next steps how do you hope these recommendations are implemented well my hope is is that at cop 26 the uk government one of the big pushes for the uk government is to really uh, push forward on nature-based solutions so my hope is that at COP26, there will be uh, an outcome that recognizes the importance of nature in not just for its own sake, but for the sake of protecting the climate and helping to provide climate mitigation, that we can use nature to help us in addressing these issues. So I'm hoping that um, uh, the global leaders that will gather at COP26 uh, later this year in Glasgow will be persuaded to move forward uh, on the protect, restore, create, manage, manage agenda uh, to really push nature-based solutions forward. So you know, because they address climate change and also a whole bunch of other environmental challenges. Turning to a sort of a slightly tangential topic for just a moment, we, we at Climate Now have another podcast episode which discusses the issue um, with carbon offsets and the difficulty with determining additionality, particularly when it comes to projects intended to boost carbon sequestration with forests, for example. As someone who is highly knowledgeable in both the areas of biodiversity and climate change mitigation, what's your take on the effectiveness of these various offset projects and their ability to be truly additional? There are examples what you can think of. You know, if you've got an area that has been largely deforested, and you can see deforestation patterns on the satellite images year on year on year on year. And you could say, if we don't protect this area of forest, it will go the same way as all the others. So there, you would have a clear statement of additionality because you've got an evidence base to say it's probably going to disappear because of all the economic activity in the area. Another one is peatland restoration, where you know that um, a peatland, when it's been drained, is continually emitting uh, temperate peatlands can be emitting over 30 tonnes of carbon dioxide per hectare per year. So you've got an ongoing loss of carbon um, from the drained peatlands. So a peatland project might say what we're going to do is we're going to restore the peatlands, we're going to raise the water table by blocking up all the drainage channels. And there you've got a clear counterfactual because if you didn't go and drop, if you didn't go and block the drains, then that ongoing emission would continue until all the peat disappeared. 
but in some cases you can clearly state the counterfactual and it's robust and people will, you know just about any expert would say yeah that's probably going to happen it's more of an issue where where you're looking for a counterfactual particularly for protecting forest the issue first came up under the uh, red program the reduced deforestation and degradation program and that was looking at um you know sort of protecting areas it's really important for the climate that we do that because we don't want to lose the carbon in those ecosystems but it's just the way that it's being used in a disingenuous way to claim carbon credits to to attract financing in uh, i don't have any issue with finance being attracted to to conservation but i do have an issue with claiming that you've had a climate benefit when in fact there's been no net climate benefit i think we have to be honest about that so following this idea of a carbon offset market should we be thinking about putting a price on biodiversity to to get people to realize the value of what we're either conserving or destroying there's actually a a, a field of environmental economics which looks at natural capital and natural capital is a way of valuing those public goods um you know the private goods are the things like you know the timber that you produce from the land or the the um the crops that you grow that you can sell but the land also provides a number of public goods um for example by purifying water by providing clean air by providing carbon sequestration and there are ways to put a value on that so the valuing of natural capital is a whole area of um you know environmental economics that's growing and there's an increasing recognition that we that we need to uh, value public goods as as much as we do private goods and indeed um as the uk uh, you know i'm i'm from scotland in the uk uh, the uk is transitioning to a form of subsidies after we left the eu the european union we're no longer part of the common agricultural policy which means that um the uk has a chance to redesign its subsidy system for agriculture and there's a move now towards um rather than subsidizing farmers to produce food we're going to subsidize them to uh to provide public goods so it's public money for public goods and i think that's overall um a a, a good idea so i have a quote from the report that i'm going to read and i'd love to hear your thoughts on it's from Professor Hans Otto Portner in the introduction, and he was the co-chair of the Scientific Steering Committee for the IPIS and IPCC workshop. And he wrote, solving some of the strong and apparently unavoidable trade-offs between climate and biodiversity will entail a profound collective shift of the individual and shared values concerning nature, such as moving away from the conception of economic progress based solely on GDP growth. What do you make of that statement? And do you think that's remotely achievable? Yeah, well, as a as an individual citizen rather than as a scientist, um, I think that there is some merit in that. Um, you know, there are things like uh, we we measure the success of a country and of a government and, and policies by looking at their effect on GDP, how much we're increasing GDP year on year. We measure economic growth in terms of our GDP every year, um, but there's an increasing realization that you know money doesn't make you happy. Um, you know, GDP is not necessarily a, a very good indicator of human well-being or human happiness. So there are other indices that are being used now, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, and they're just being looked at here in Scotland. 
that look at human well-being as an index of how well we're performing. So I think we're, you know, we can't just abandon uh, economic well-being because it's only in uh, our relatively affluent, well-off countries that we can afford to think about, you know, human well-being decoupled from economics. Uh, but when you've reached a certain level of economic development, you can start to think, you know, is that all there is? <laughs> is that the only is that the only way we're going to measure how well we're doing? Ultimately, you know, we, we want to protect the planet. We want to protect where we live. We want to keep it good for our kids and our grandchildren. And we want to be happy. You know, we want to have a happy life. So why not use some indices that measure human happiness and well-being? Very interesting. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for talking through all of this with us. It was a great chat. Yeah, it's fun for me too. Thanks. That is it for this episode of the podcast. You can check out our other interviews, watch our videos, and sign up for our newsletter at climatenow.com. And if you want to get in touch, email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet at us at we are climate now. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.